Hello, and welcome to the Collapsed Podcast. My name is Joel. My name is Matt. We think you're really going to enjoy this. If you love business and you just love good stories, this is going to be a great look into how companies are really successful and they ultimately fail. That's right. And this is our first episode, so the sound quality isn't the greatest, but we are improving and we promise the audio quality gets much better. So we hope that you'll stick with us, uh, listen to the first episode, get that foundational info on Pan Am, and then hear the rest of the story. Enjoy the episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Collapsed Podcast. My name's Joel. And I'm Matt. We're your hosts, and we're going to be talking about companies that have collapsed over time. Mm -hmm. This first one is Pan Am. Do you know anything about Pan Am, Matt? Not much, to be honest. I know they're an airline company. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very large, very successful. They had a lot of firsts. We'll talk about those. At its height? Because this doesn't fit into the narrative, I'll put it in right here. At its height, it had it owned a missile company that worked with the government on space and different programs. It also owned a very successful hotel chain. Interesting. We'll talk about that a little here uh, briefly. But like all good stories, this it starts before the inception of the company. Like most companies that start, there's one person that's a driving force. And Pan Am's no different. And this person is Juan Trip. You probably get a particular image when you think of Juan Trip, but you can get that image out of your head. He was named after Juanita Terry, who's a Venezuelan wife of his great uncle, but he's European. Hmm. He was born in 1899, and like I said, he was believed to be Hispanic descent, but he's actually Northern European. He l- fell in love with flight in 1909. He went to this air show. He saw the Wright brothers. He just saw that and he knew he wanted to do something in flight. So with that knowledge in hand, he enrolled at Yale. His dad owned a bank, but he left. He went into the U.S. uh, He joined the U.S. Navy and he went to World War One. And he applied for flight training. He never actually fought. He just learned how to fly. And he learned there how to fly he went back to yale and he learned the most important lesson you can learn in business and we're going to give it to you right here for free (laughs) knowing the right people that's all it is (laughs) it's all you need to know in business so after he learned that he was demobilized like i said he returned to yale he graduated in 1921 so he loves flying went to business school he graduated What's the next thing that you would do if you love to fly? What would you think? Hmm. Um, well, how much money does he have right now? <laughs> I would say buy a plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's not bad. Um, but he does what most people do. He went into bond sales, of course. Oh, yep. Yep. nice. That's exciting. Yep. And his, uh, his dad bank <laughs> failed. Uh, he was sold bonds for about two years, and he realized how boring and awful that was. So then he did exactly what you said. He created a first business, which was called... 
Which, by the way, if you're a Bond salesman and that makes your heart sing, you know, more power to you. <laughs> Good for you. You're in the right spot. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so. so he didn't want to sell Bonds anymore. He goes, I'm not doing that. I'm going to fly planes. I'm going to create an airline. What do you think it was called? Did he call it Pan Am right away? That would be a great guess. That's what I would have guessed. Uh, no, he called it Long Island Airways. And if you want to imagine this in your head, if you watch that show Wings, when that was... Did you watch that at all? No. Sandpiper Air? What is well, that? He, okay. Well, it's a show about this pilot, basically, and he runs, like, literally, it's one plane, it has, like, six seats on it, and he goes to and from, like, New York City and I forget which island. Mm. Um, but that's essentially what he had. He bought Navy Surf Plus planes for $500 each, so 8800 dollars for a total of 56000 so obviously, he's not doing terrible at this point in time. Either he's got money from his dad, or he did fairly well as a bond salesman. So he had some mm -hmm. capital. These planes only had a single engine with enough room for just a pilot and one passenger. So, not a huge, not huge planes. Then he kind of learned this lesson. He was able to modify the engine, make it a little bit smaller, but maintain the same amount of power. Um, that's my way of... Uh, condensing an entire paragraph talking about the engine. I was like, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> we can do that in the car section where we do a car company. Sure. Uh, but he was able to reduce the engine size, increase another seat, so he's able to double the amount of passengers. Okay. Um, and this is important. You'll see this as the years go by that he figured out this tactic that if you could increase capacity, you can increase your revenue. There is an issue with this, though, because it's true. If you increase your capacity, increase revenue, but only if you have the demand to meet that capacity. Otherwise, it's just an empty seat. Right. That's also important, as you'll see here in the decades to come. So uh, he did that. He's not doing too bad, and he worked a lot of roles at this company he created. He was a pilot, bookkeeper, janitor, so he wasn't afraid to fulfill everything there. In 1924, so just two years later, the airline went bankrupt. He did fairly well, apparently. I guess he paid himself well and just let the airline go bankrupt. He had enough. <laughs> he pocketed some money and he was. He learned how to run a little airline. So this is in the 20s. There aren't really airlines around. So can I ask real quick? Yep, of course. Uh, he ran this. Was it... it was it something that he considered more like a pet project as opposed to something this that he like, wanted to actually make into a full-fledged business? No, I think this was his business. This wasn't a hobby. Okay. This is all he was doing. Yeah. So the airline industry right now is really difficult to get into and maintain. It's expensive, and people really aren't flying because flying is very expensive by itself. I'll, later, I'll talk to you about some pricing, and you'll, you'll see... Um, but this is why regulation starts coming in. You know, they, in order for the airline industry to kind of start getting propped up, the government kind of steps in and they do subsidize a little bit. And they do that with mail routes. I don't want to go into all the regulation because we're going to talk about that in another episode when we talk about deregulation. Um, but it does mean, you know, there's less capitalism initially. The market forces aren't influencing the market quite as much and this is important because it's regulated by a governmental entity politics is extremely important 
if you have political power, you have a lot of power over the industry because democracy, that's how it works. (laughs) (laughs) And another issue this, as you'll see, this causes is regulated monopolies, which in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. But again, you'll see problems down the road when the airline industry becomes deregulated. So this is regulated by the Civil Aeronautics Board, and they're kind of determine the fares and everything when passengers starking on the planes. And before then, though, the 1925 Act or the Kelly Act, the Kelly Act kind of gave the post office the authority to negotiate uh, these with these private companies to carry airmail, also known as a subsidy. <laughs> yeah. So trip. The Long Island Airways didn't really pan out. So he creates another company. What do you think this one's called? Still not Pan Am. Eventually, <laughs> you'll get that right. <laughs> not quite yet. Yeah. Uh, not uh, yet. Okay, you know? so I'm going to go with uh, Long Island Express. Okay, yeah. On that still Island stick the Long Island Not theme. even close. Yeah, okay. He called it Eastern Air Transport. Okay, wow. Okay, I mean, they're just doing mail. I mean, it's just a very blah name. So he merged with this other company called Colonial Air Transport, and they won the the mail contract. So he's doing pretty well. He's the vice president and manager of this company. He started recruiting investors and friends from Yale, and then directors from all his old classmates. But Tripp had a vision. Tripp wanted to get into the passenger space. He didn't want to freight around mail for the rest of his life. He saw airmail as a means to get passengers. So he goes to essentially the board of directors and he says something along the lines of, I really want to start having passengers. And I'm sure they just looked at him and said, why? <laughs> We're not even making money that we have. They're losing $8,000 a month. They had 100000 in cash, though, so they had a little bit of capital. So what do you think they said when he proposed this to them? You think they said, all right, we'll do that, and we'll start moving that, or you think they kicked him out? I'm wondering if, if they were willing to entertain the idea if he could prove to them that it would be profitable. That but my thought be, is that based on the time period, they probably just said get out. That would be a rational thing to do. Yeah, they just they just kicked him out. They didn't want anything to do with it. They were losing money as it was. They were just trying to focus on what they had. So he got kicked out. He had reasons to be optimistic, though. A lot was happening in aviation at the moment. Charles Lindbergh just proved that tra- transoceanic flight was possible. He flew from New York to Paris. In 34 hours. And he was up for, I think, over 50 hours. I mean, it was... I can't imagine that flight. It must have been brutal. Uh, But that was happening. And things were looking up in the aviation world. So, he thinks about creating another company. This one called Aviation Corporation of America. I wasn't even going to make you try to guess that one. (laughs) (laughs) It's just going to keep being different geographic That's locations right. until he eventually yeah. is like, Pan, Pan America. Am. That's right. <laughs> All of okay. it. Well, we're there. We're there, okay? So a new airline in Florida was recently created called Pan American Airways. So Juan Tripp did not create this company, mm. although, as you'll see, he essentially did. Uh, 
And later in what we'll call it, I'll call it Pan Am, but it is officially known as Pan American World Airways. This is its official name. So it was started by two former U.S. Army Air Corps majors, and they wanted to compete against some of the German companies kind of flying into the Caribbean and Latin America. So there were these three companies, I think Juan's company, this Pan Am company, and then a Florida Airways company. They all applied for this mail route, and basically the postmaster general, the assistant postmaster general said, just, you guys should go just combine, be one company. And that's what they did. So now it's just Pan Am from here. No more guessing games for the names. No more guessing games. It is Pan Am. Actually, I'll even make it feel better. What do you think these three companies, what do you think they were called when they merged? Uh, Pan Am? This is the Gibby. Pan Am. Oh, you got it. I actually thought it was a trick question for a second. No, no, no. Not a trick. It was a layup. Okay. It was a layup. So its first flight, Pan Am's first official flight, was Key West to Havana. And this is for the U.S. Mail in 1927. Uh, and then in 1928, they started to ferry passengers. But here's some key figures. This is this? Right, they got paid $2 a mile to transport 800 pounds of mail twice a week. Don't worry, I'm, I'll do the math for you here. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to um, start taking notes. Yeah, you're like, uh, <laughs> no. so round trip is <laughs> around 1,900 miles round trip. And at the time, they got $2.5 million a year in revenue for this. Today's money, $44 million. Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. This is just for mail. And during this time, as we talked about, Charles Limblad did his uh, flight, but he also joined Pan Am, and he stays at Pan Am for the rest of his career as, as an advisor, technical advisor, as well as, I mean, all the other parts of the business. So he's always in the background through this entire story. Um, and then he, Charles, is a celebrity, and so it helped give kind of the celebrity face to Pan Am as well. And it made Pan Am a household name. I don't really have a good spot to put this in, but at its height, Pan Am is one of the three best recognized logo in the United States. Um, Coca-Cola being, you know, one of the other ones. Wow. So, yeah, it's it pretty is. pretty significant. Not at this point in time, but mm-hmm. yes, it grows to be huge. Uh, so, Juan Tripp became the president and general manager of Pan Am. And he's 28 years old. He's doing a little bit better, better than we are, I think. I was going to say, yeah, man, it really puts life into perspective. Uh, yeah, but you know what? We got we got five months left. That's right. <laughs> 28. Yeah. So he has this mail route. They're making steady income. This is good. But it's really just a base for what he wants to do is ferry these passengers. So... I put my notes out of order here. That's not good, is it? Uh-oh. Okay. I want to go back to this mail route. That first flight from Havana, Key West, there was a big issue there. The issue was the runway kept getting washed away. Mm. Right? So they every time they laid gravel, it would just wash away night after night. And they they had a deadline, which was October 19th, when they needed to make the flight. And they couldn't get an extension. So this was their first flight. They haven't been successful yet. So they found this guy named Kai. or C- It's CY. I'm going to go with Kai. Kai Cadwell. He owned a float plane, which is basically a plane that just lands on water. Um, and they asked him if he would 
do this trip for them because this way they didn't have to land on tarmac or gravel, you know. And he said, nope, I don't want to fly. So they persuaded him with a $3,000 check in t- today's money. Um, and he said, okay, I'll, I'll do the flight. So he went and he did a flight and he is internally known as the person that saved Pan Am. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because of that one specific flight. Yeah, well, they wouldn't have got the contract because the, yeah. the time would have elapsed for the mm-hmm. yeah the mail wow. service. So yeah, it was nice that it was out of order, but hopefully the rest gets on there. So this is the main form of plane travel this time, are these boat planes. Literally, I mean, you go to the ticket counter, let's say, and you say, yeah, I'd, I'd like a ticket for a plane. I say, yep, just take that little boat over there out to that plane right there on the water. I said plane. <laughs> yeah, no, they would take a little rowboat or whatever over to the plane. You get in the plane, and then off, off you'd go. You take off from the water, especially in the Caribbean and uh, those kind of Now areas. I see why there's 55 pound luggage limits because you can only fit so much in the boat. It's a carryover from the that's right yeah. from the legacy. <laughs> that's right. Don't it's, sink the boat to get to the plane. <laughs> that's right. But this boat. They're called plane boats or boat planes. Uh, Trip loved the Navy. And so he's going to start making, instituting these changes that are still with us today in airlines. So one of the things they did is we changed the ranks, right? So you have, you don't have a co-pilot, you have a first officer, you have a captain. They started wearing uniforms like the Navy. I mean, you see them walking around the airport, at least the last time you went. They look like officers, right? And so that is from this time period. They st- Before this, they wore leather, you know, like the little leather cap and the the, the leather jacket, you know. Like but a this bom- is really like a bomber jacket kind of thing? Yeah. 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 I mean, look up pictures of Amelia Earhart or Charles mm. Lombard who's okay. making this flight. Yeah. And you'll see what I'm talking about. And this is where they started making that switch to this much more professional look. When they walked out to the plane... They would walk out in twos in unison in a march, you know, so they looked very organized. He changed his flying boats names. They called him Clippers. Um, So that's the 20s. Now we go into the 30s. This is a big expansion for Pan Am. They expand into the Caribbean, Central America, South America. And a lot of this was also fueled by Wall Street. They're seeing that there is money to actually be made in airplanes, which there really wasn't before. Uh, so, and then in 1935, Pan Am is the first commercial airline to fly across the Pacific. Hmm. So they're doing a lot of firsts. Um, there are some bad things or negative. There's been a lot of disappearances starting to have. In 1938, this guy named Leo flew from Guam to Melania. Yeah, as you'll learn in this podcast, I'm not the best at pronunciation. <laughs> but he disappeared. He flew on that route and was never seen again. And then a year before that, Amelia Earhart vanished, roughly around the same spot. As you know, I went to Bermuda a few weeks ago, and I was doing some research into the Bermuda Triangle. And there have been 10 planes, or 10 events where planes have disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle in the last... I guess, 200 years or so that we know of. And then there's boats, too, and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, it is weird. I, In fact, when we were trying to figure out where we were going to go for our honeymoon, she was like, well, we could go to Bermuda. And I was like, not so fast. 
That means <laughs> <laughs> people keep telling me that. It's, there's nothing wrong with going to Bermuda. It's at the tip of the triangle. Like, what if I'm on one of those planes? You know, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I think you'd be all right. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Got to play into the it 30, a little bit. Yeah. So the 30s. This is where you have. You'll see later. This is the core of the pilots here. These are the veteran pilots that we're going to see in a few decades. And they get a name. And this name, they're known as Sky Gods. And they really take that to heart. You know, people have like a reverence to them. They were there in the beginning. They're really good pilots. They're a step above the rest. And this is a very different time period than now. This is more of like the Wild West with planes. They did have, when you go international, they would have agents and kind of look over your stuff, but you could get away with a lot. And I got a little story here to kind of illustrate that. So there's a captain, one of these sky gods. He loves snakes. He collected snakes. So he went all over the world and collected snakes. So he would bring back these snakes with him in his suitcase. <laughs> and as you can imagine, when he dropped his suitcase down at the agent at customs or whatever their equivalent was at the time, and they opened it up and they had these snakes. You can imagine they're just shrieking and jumping backwards as any normal person would do. So on one trip, this agent told this pilot if he had any more snakes today, he'd find himself in jail and the snake's head would be on the floor. And he said, okay. He goes, so open that up. And he goes, you don't want me to do that. He goes, I got manure in there. He goes, all right, buddy. Let's see. So the agent was ready for any kind of snake that opened up. So he actually was holding a machete <laughs> in his hand, <laughs> ready to chop off the snake's head. He goes, empty the suitcase. He said, you really want me to do the whole thing? He goes, yeah, the whole thing. So he dumped out the whole thing, and it's just filled with manure. <laughs> <laughs> Why did he have that in just, I don't know. I don't know. But he's just all sorts of things. And all these pilots had different exotic personalities. Not necessarily in a good way. <laughs> How many snakes did he bring over? Did they ever say? I don't know. Because I'm wondering if look he into that. contributed to... Uh, any kind of snake population in the U.S. Oh, yeah. Bringing in an invasive yeah. species. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. There's another story. It's not in the notes doing this off the top of my head, mm. but uh, the co-pilot was really excited. He's a young guy. And this is decades in the future. And he's sitting next to a sky god, you know, one of the best. And they're getting lower and lower. And he's thinking to himself, man, we should really deploy the, the landing gear. And they're getting lower. And he's like... I'm just going to tell him, he goes, sir, don't you think we should deploy the landing gear? And he, the, the captain just yells at him and goes, of course I know I'm going to do this. And, you know, just rants on him. And then he de deploys the landing gear really quick because, you know, he forgot. And then the captain wrote up his first office over questioning his orders or his judgment during the flight. So it just gives you the sense of how much power that they have or they think they have. Gotcha. Wow. During this time period. Yeah. Healthy working environment. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Uh, so another thing happened, accomplishment at this time. This guy named Bob Ford, he was around Pearl Harbor when it was attacked. So he couldn't get home normally. So he flew across the world the opposite way and got to New York City. He was the first commercial airplane to fly around the world. And another interesting thing, I'm going to back up another year here, uh, 
Pan Am was a little bit ahead of the U.S. military in its airplane design and technology. And so the military was actually using Pan Am to spy and gain intelligence on the Japanese. Uh, so when the Japanese were making plans to attack the U.S., they attacked Pearl Harbor, military bases, and they also specifically targeted Pan Am bases and actually really? killed and took prisoners. Yeah. So I did not know that. <clears throat> wow. I, yeah, I had mm-hmm. I'd never heard of that in all of <clears throat> all of history classes, all that. They never have ever talked about that. Um, yeah. I was going to back up and ask you about the uh, flight around the world. Um, he must have known all the different refueling stations, right? And then yeah, like, I guess because so. I'm thinking like he, there's no way he would have enough fuel to do that all in one go so he must have no no he had to stop multiple times at this point in time they couldn't even get across the atlantic in one go mm. yeah, how so did they stop multiple times where did they stop in the atlantic i don't know I meant to look it up and i never did maybe we can always go back at the end we can <laughs> we can talk about it at the end we could look it up or the next episode we'll add in some of these questions that you got yeah I'm not sure. Interesting. So. Okay. All right. So we got there. And, okay. So, in the early days, Tripp and the pilots, they didn't really mingle all that much. He did hire this German person named Andre. I'm just going to leave it at Andre. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. Uh, To oversee Pan Am's flight operations. And kind of improve the performance of the pilots and just try to make the airline more profitable. Performance improvement, let's call it. Yeah, it's kind of his overarching thing. He had really bad English and he was a perfectionist. Hmm. He, just to give you an idea, he would fire people if they took a break because he said, I'm not paying you to sit down. Well, I mean, I guess they are when you're flying, but I'm not paying you to take a break. So he would just fire people. He would send Christmas cards, though. After you'd been fired? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> probably, just, probably not just to dig we it in. Waste that. So he would send Christmas cards to the pilots and then in the corners of the Christmas card he would write things down like their propeller efficiency their fuel consumption of their flights if they needed to be better <laughs> so all these little subtle hints Merry Christmas here's your performance review <laughs> that's right yeah and my next line here is that the pilots unionized underneath the Airlines Pilot Association. I'm sure it wasn't because of him, but I like to think that they specifically unionized so <laughs> against this one person. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, wow. So let's see. Yeah. All right. So Pan Am is expanding. They have all these routes. And in the 1940s, and Juan is a very powerful person at this point in time he is having lunch with the president at this point in this story and roosevelt talks to him about expanding travelers or having more travelers to these different areas of the the world and he proposes pandam create a hotel chain to do this of course you know trip loved this idea he of course he wanted to expand and do this and the U.S. government was going to back him on top of it? I mean, how great is this? So they wanted to create a luxury hotel that the travelers at this time would want to stay at because air travel is very expensive, so the people that are doing it 
want higher tastes than whatever hotels were offered in Brazil at the time or Mexico or, or whatever have you, with all these different air stops. Mm-hmm. And so the Intercontinental Hotel Group was formed. I think he put in a million dollars and the U.S. government gave him a $25 million loan. Yep. And that chain is still around today. It is owned by the same chain that owns Holiday Inn. Is that IHG? Yes, yes. yes. I had to think about that for a second. Yep. I just recently yep, used them. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, they have 200 hotels. Yeah, and they, they're very high-end hotel. I have never stayed at one, but they supposedly are supposed to cater to each city that they're in, and each one is unique. Yeah. So at this point in time... All the airline pilots, when if they're at a airport or wherever they're stopping for the night, and it has one, that's where they're staying. So this is a very glamorous time to be a pilot. They do very well. They make really good money for the most part. Um, we'll talk about that here down the road too. Uh, and then since it's not going to fit into the narrative, I'll just toss this in. They also owned like a helicopter division and they owned like a missile range basically they just were contracts with the military to produce uh, different space technology and ballistic technology kind of like a lockheed just, martin yeah mm-hmm. something like that yeah it's not really super important to this narrative uh, so that's just a little snippet on that mm-hmm. but there is something so this is the 30s now we're going into the 40s we kind of they're just continuing to expand they did the hotels which was very profitable by the way all the way up until it got bought by another company, never was losing money. So now we go into the 50s, and this is a big time period. The type of plane that was really big in this time, the propeller planes. You still see some propeller planes, I think, today, so you can get a pretty good idea. But propeller planes aren't the future. You know, jet planes is starting to come on the horizon. You're starting to see those. But it was expensive. You know, propeller planes, they were a quarter of the cost. And they did have more range, but they had half the speed. So these trade-offs. The boss at this time of American Airlines, quote, said, We are all of us still intrigued by the glamour offered by the jet airplane, but neither we nor you, the consumer, can now afford it. Okay. That's a very reasonable, businessy thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and the price of a jetliner was about $4 million an airplane. And uh, there was another quote by another boss uh, that said, we can't go backward to the jet. So they're just saying it's too expensive. It's nice. You know, maybe the military can play with it first and then it'll come trickle down to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the other side of that equation, which is Trip. He's this very ambitious person and he's like, that's the future. Speed equals money, and if you can do more trips in a day, more trips is equal to more money. So that's how he's looking at it. So most of these airlines aren't interested in the jet. What are they interested in? And this, the next iteration of the propeller, which is called the turbo propeller. I'm not going into any detail about this because I don't want to be bored by talking about that. I'm not going to bore you. But it's, essentially, it was similar to the propeller. It feels the same to what consumers already knew, and it was a lot cheaper than a jet. A little fun fact here, jets actually have a much smoother ride. They also ride at a higher altitude, which is part of the reason there's less turbulence. Yeah. Uh, 
But to give you an example, when I say they're faster, that doesn't mean anything, does it? But I just tell you that. So I'm going to give you some some numbers here so you can kind of see this. Mm -hmm. So if you went at this point in time in a propeller plane from L.A. to New York, it was about eight hours. In the jet plane, it was a little less than five. Okay. That's a pretty significant time chunk. It is. I mean, you could do two of those flights as opposed to just one of the eight-hour one, mm-hmm. and that's what Trip is thinking. I mean, if you can fly a hundred people once, or two hundred people, you know, mm-hmm. you just have to do the math on that. So that's how he's looking at. It. And this is where I'm going to talk about how expensive it was to fly. So in 1955, there is really, well, the classes really did start coming out. So before the 50s. There's really no such thing as first class or economy. It's just the flight. They're all the same. They're all very nice seats. I mean, there was dining and you had lots of leg room and there are lounges. The 50s is kind of where like the coach or the economy class comes in. But still expensive. So if you, in 1959, a one-way coach fare from L.A. to New York was eleven almost $1,200 in today's money. Okay. Yeah, and that's just one way. Round trip was around thirty five hundred. Wow. Well, like I said, in the fifties, and when this the seven, the Boeing seven hundred seven, which is the first real jet plane that kind of comes around, as you'll see here in a minute, that's what really introduced the economy class, and they started separating first class, economy class, or first class business class, economy class. You'll start seeing the lounges on planes start going away, and they stuff those areas with seats Mm -hmm. for more money. Is this about the time when people started to not dress as um, fancy, if you will, for flight? You know. Oh, I don't know, but I'm going to say yes. Because you know, because it used to be like an (laughs) ordeal. You you'd get all dressed up. Get all dressed up. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that's probably not going away, but that's pure conjecture. Yeah. Coach was still expensive. I'm going to give you an example here. Let's see. First class from London to New York in economy was $2,700. That's expensive. So it's still not cheap. Yeah. Yeah, it is still not... $2,700 in today's money. Yeah. Yeah. Still not cheap. So, So we have these clipper planes... All the airlines are saying, this is what we're going to do. And they all put in orders for the next generation of these propeller planes. That's really important. This is not like putting an order on Amazon. Planes are really expensive. It takes a lot of time. And you can't just back out of contracts. So they are locked into these contracts, more or less. And Mr. Tripp here is saying, let's just skip that. Let's go right to the jet. So, uh, Trip went, they scouted German factories. They knew the boats were becoming obsolete because they were having issues with these boat planes. They needed these safe harbors that were free of ice and salt water because the salt water destroyed these airplane components. So, the first jetliner really produced was called the Comet. It was a British built airplane. It still didn't have exactly what he wanted, it still had to stop once or twice to refuel uh, across the Atlantic. How does it refuel? No clue. <laughs> but it refuels somewhere along that line. I don't know where. Uh, but it was still faster by a few hours than the current propeller airplanes that were going across. So Pan Am bought three. Very small number, but it's enough to get started. Uh, 
So this is one of the things that really changed airline, the airline industry. And it's a really good story. So I'm going to introduce some players. The first one is Pan Am. You already know that. The head of Pan Am, it's Juan Tripp. He's ambitious. He's smart. He's determined. You have him. You have the head of Boeing. He, this guy is Alan. He's methodical, you know, thoughtful. I'm just going to leave it at that. Nice and simple. Won't use too many descriptors. And then there's another company, Pratt and Whitney. They are the ones who make the engines. So you have Boeing that's making the structure. So it's like Boeing makes the car, just the frame. Pratt and Whitney produce the engine. And Pan Am has the driver. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of... So we're going to go through this. So, so an F1 contract. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of like that. Okay, so here are the issues. Juan Trip wants a jetliner that's big and can go across the Atlantic in one go without having to refuel. So he has two kind of big issues. So the first issue he decides to tackle is the plane. So he goes, because he knows that Boeing is working on something called the Dash 80, which you'll never hear that word again because it turns into the Boeing 707. And this is a four-engine jetliner for the military, and Pan Am thought, oh, this could be used for civilian service. But its main issue is that with its current specs, it couldn't get across the Atlantic. But it was the right size. So he talked with him a little bit. And Douglas, another competing airline company, was building the DC-8, which was basically the same plane. Again, the issue was they couldn't get across the Atlantic in one go. So, he picked his airplane, just didn't have the right engines. So, he went to that other company I was telling you about, Pratt & Whitney, they were so currently. Oh, I want to bore you too much, but J fifty sevens is the current engine that they they were going to use in these things. Mm. They're the same one used in the B fifty two bombers. They produced ten thousand pounds of thrush, uh, thrust, and they were thirty percent more powerful than any other engine in the world at this time. To give you a comparison, because I don't know what ten thousand pounds of thrust means. Right, me neither. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I don't. But to give you an example of how powerful they are, because you know at least a Boeing seven forty seven the big planes that they use right now they produce forty-seven thousand pounds of thrust per engine oh they're beasts but ten thousand pounds was still a lot at this point in time but then trip heard of this experimental engine called the j75 and that would be more powerful and that would be enough to get across the Atlantic in one go. This is just an issue. It's not built yet. It's just experimental. And that was called the J-75. So he went to this company, asked for it, and it was experimental, and they said no. And they're not going to... They knew that Boeing and Douglas were not going to build a plane around an engine that doesn't even exist yet. So they weren't going to sell them. And they said, listen, you can come back in a few years, and then we can talk then. So Tripp said, okay, I tell you what, why don't we go have a, a nice meeting, let's have a nice dinner. And I said, okay. 
So they had the meeting. He again, he said the same thing. Uh, why don't you give me this engine? And he said, no, wait. He goes, okay, I'll tell you what. Let's take two weeks, think it through, and then we'll talk again. And the guy's like, okay, fine. <laughs> Whatever. We keep telling you no, it's just going to be no again. But Trip is not somebody who takes no for an answer. So what does he do? So he knows that Rolls-Royce also makes airline engines, and they could do this as well. So he leaked intentionally that he was going to buy an engine that can make the transatlantic flight from a non-American company. Can I hear a gasp right now? <laughs> non-American company. He knew that Pratt and Whitney would hear about this, and they flipped their lid. They couldn't believe that the first American airliner was going to have a foreign engine. So they had a dilemma. I'm going to give you this dilemma, okay? You tell me what your thoughts would be. <clears throat> if Pan Am went with this British engine, Rolls-Royce, then their, Pratt and Whitney's, business would likely shrink because everybody else will probably be taking these engines. Their reputation would be tarnished as more airlines would just follow Pan Am's lead. So that's one side. On the other side, if they make this experimental engine and it just starts exploding <laughs> in the air because they haven't tested it enough or just doesn't work, nobody's going to ever buy anything further than they get either. So what do you think they kind of decide to do? What, what do you think, given that information? I would say... They would want to kick their development into overdrive and figure out how to make this thing work so that they don't lose out on the business. Because you're right, if you become the sole supplier, it's going to be really hard for people to decide to suddenly switch over to you after you were late to the game. So if you can at least be a first mover to some extent, you know, it'd be better Absolutely. to invest in that engine. Are you going to tell me that they... like? stole from Rolls Royce or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, I think you you nailed it spot on. I they the CEO, they went to their engineers and they they reevaluated the schematics and the engineers kind of like they just kind of squinted at it and they said, "Well, it's not really that experimental. It's just if you just squint, it's just a bigger version of that 57. So it's it the temp limits are probably already the same and the specs you know, although it's not really as untested as we thought, you know, so we probably could just make it. This the same thing. It's a little bit bigger. <laughs> if you just squint really hard, it's the same thing. So exactly like you said, underneath this pressure, they said, okay, we'll make the engine. And so Trip just ordered 40 of them right off the bat. $250,000 an engine for $40 million Oof. for an unmade thing. Yeah, it's never been tested or flown. That's a big order for an experiment. It's, yeah, yeah. So, he got the engine. Now he's got to actually get the plane, and he wants it made the way he wants it. Not for the military, but for him. Changing plane designs is really expensive. They don't like to do it. If man, I'll have to. So he went to Boeing and said, Hey, Alan, would you change the 707? And they said no. <laughs> because I, I want it longer wider i want the wings changed um and it's okay in the the design phase but they've already built a physical prototype and they said no we're not going to do that they said a prototype's already been built this is very expensive 
Pan Am did have some leverage. They were Boeing's largest client. But Bill Allen, he didn't he didn't want to scrap everything and start over again. He also didn't want to lose his largest client. So what do you do? You have a plane here. The military is interested. So, I mean, it's not like it's going to go to nothing. You have your largest client saying, I want you to change it. What do you do? Do you call his bluff and loot and possibly lose a large client? Or do you make the changes and spend a lot of money on that? And I don't have exact figures, so I know. Yeah. Maybe I'm thinking he probably tried to find a way to redesign it in a way that could be repurposed for both the military and for hauling passengers. So maybe if he could redesign it with passengers in mind and then pitch it to the military as well, here's how you can modify this. Oh, yeah, that's smart. Know, to, to work for you. That's smart. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't go that route. He said, take it or leave it. <laughs> This is a good plane. There aren't that many jetliners around. It's us and Douglas's. Take it or leave it. So, Trip walked, and he went to Douglas. Uh, Douglas, like I said, it had a similar design. Douglas had less to lose. Uh, their plane was only on paper, uh, but they didn't want to change the design just for one customer. And I, I understand that is risk. Yeah. Right. Uh, but Douglas agreed. Eventually agreed, and the design they chose to change their design around Trip's requests. And he agreed to buy 24 of these planes. They were called the DC-8. And right after he signed that contract, he just said, hey, just one more thing. Let's just keep this deal a secret. And I said, okay, that's fine. So then he went back to Boeing and he said something to the effect of, you know what, Alan, I changed my mind. I'll actually take the 707 as it is with the smaller engine. Uh, and you know what? I'll take 21 of them. And uh, when he left, Alan was beaming. I mean, it didn't say that, but I can just imagine he's just smiling. He called this bluff and he won. And they were right. Yeah, he felt great. They got the order. They didn't have to change anything. They kept their client. Um, funny, <laughs> I'm sure he did this on purpose. He trip signed a contract with Boeing and Douglas on the same day. And I'm sure it wasn't in the same room, but I like to think it was literally one room and they shuffle in one company and they sign the paperwork. They shuffle about the same door. They kind of like pass each other in the hallway, but they, they don't really recognize each other. And then they come in and they sign the other paperwork. Yeah, there's no LinkedIn to stock at the time. So you're maybe not sure yeah. who he is. Yeah, like, huh, yeah, I did recognize it. That's really yeah. funny. So, everybody's happy. Douglas is happy. They got their order. Boeing is happy. They called the bluff. They got to keep the business. Not only did they keep it, they put in a nice big order of 21 planes. They're happy. Then, a few days later, so this is 1955, there was an International Air Transportation Association meeting. It sounds really boring. Uh, but essentially, all the bigwigs in the airline industry are here. Um, there's nice lectures. And I'm sure there's a nice dinner. Tripp didn't make any announcements. But he was just casually talking with people about his new order of 45 jets. And you can imagine the manufacturers there. And he's just casually mentioning, oh, yes, 45 jets. Yeah, 24 of them are going to be transatlantic models. Interesting, no? And kind of passing this around. Yeah. And so he literally he just told all the because you have to remember every other airline spent millions of dollars on propeller models. And here's Trip just saying, uh, jets, we're going all jets here. 
Yep. Yeah, we got some that can go all across the ocean in one go. They don't even need to stop. Which, by the way, have not been built or tested yet. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't mention that part. Yeah, Just yeah. like slinging this around. Yeah. Yeah. But all the other executives were just made aware of how far behind they just were. I think in some place I read, they're about t- 10 years behind at this point in time. I mean, they oh, are wow. literally propelling <laughs> themselves forward. Yeah. Trump's a troublemaker. <laughs> yeah, he is. When Boeing found out what happened, they lost it. They knew that every airline would want the bigger jet engine making their model obsolete. Because who's going to want, now that they know that there's this transatlantic one, who's going to want these little ones? He's just going to use them for little tiny trips, like uh, on the continent. And all of a sudden, Douglas is making these. Huge, huge issue. I can just imagine the black cloud rolling over (laughs) Boeing headquarters right now. (laughs) They were so happy a few days before, and now there's probably nasty memos being faxed to people i don't know if they... <laughs> they've uh they, they made a short-term game choice yeah, yeah that is blowing up in their face yeah. yes so bill allen the methodical intelligent man that he is he picked up the phone probably took a few hours but he picked it up he called trip and he said fine we'll we'll make your plane <laughs> And he did. So Pan Am still bought six of those smaller jets, and they used them. Um, and then they eventually they were they started them. To, ugh. They used them to start their jet service, and then they eventually moved into Latin American operations. And I, I bet Juan Trip he enjoyed a nice drink that night. He gambled everything. He was told no by Boeing, no by the engine maker, just no. And he turned everything around, and he got everything he wanted. That's impressive. I bet you, I bet you Alan we, had quite the drink, too, but not for the same reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very different kind of drinking. Yeah, yeah. You got to give him a lot of props uh, for that. He gambled big, and he won. Yeah, and not only in that account, he's ahead of all these other airlines. A huge margin. I think, too, the, the other interesting thing about this is, you know, I can't necessarily speak for all these other companies, but it's also... I think a good case of how we end up with a bit of the worship that happens in business culture of some of these guys because of survivorship bias, right? They're like, well, this guy, he he gambled everything and he won. Why can't I do the same? Yeah. It's like, well, it's not that you can't do the same, but you're, you're not him and you're in very different circumstances. That's right. Uh, Don't look at the exceptions and think you're, it's the rule. Right. Yeah, so it's yeah. just an interesting exactly. thing that we see these guys take these big gambles sometimes, and it's like, well, it could happen. And yeah. it's like, yeah, it could, I guess. It, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, I, I told you he bought all these things. These are expensive. These jets are expensive. The engines are expensive. Um, but the pro, they were the first to do this transatlantic flight in the 1960s. Uh, but investors were pretty upset. The new planes cost a total of roughly $270 million. And I'm going to give you another number here. 
their net earnings. I didn't. I couldn't find their gross for whatever reason, but their net earnings for that year was ten point four million. Oof. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Uh, so I did the math, and I think it came out with if you make a hundred thousand a year net, to be fair. So maybe like let's say you make one hundred fifty thousand a year. Uh, it's the same as you buying a two and a half million dollar home. Yeah. How long did they have to pay? Was there any sort of <laughs> to pay uh, payment plan for these jets, or was it all up front? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it was all up front. I okay. didn't look into that, but just showing this was a game. Still, that's a little scary. However, it, yeah. it paid off. In five years after this first flight, uh, their operating income rose to $500 million a year. And unfortunately, I couldn't find... The net income. It, it's weird. I mean, this book wasn't written for someone trying to look at the business side of things per se, because mm-hmm. they're not giving you all the numbers I want. But I can tell you that uh, down the road, I think it was in the 70s, maybe it was 69, they did make a net profit of like $70 million. And the year before that, it was like $100 million. So it is paying off for them, is the short version of this. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Pan Am is having another issue on the home front here. It has nothing to do with planes. They are outgrowing their office. And they were in the Chrysler building. They needed something bigger. So this guy comes in who wants to create a really large commercial building. His name was Erwin Wolfson. I think I got that one right. Uh, But he needed a large tenant. Uh, He talked to GM. They passed. IBM. They didn't want it either. Pan Am was another. Oh, Pan Am is headquartered in New York. I guess I should probably preface with this. Is I guess you would get that from knowing they were in the Chrysler building. But if you don't know where the Chrysler building is, it's in New York City. So they're in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy, Irwin, heard that Juan wanted new headquarters. But Tripp was pretty reluctant. He wanted, but he did want some dazzling headquarters. So he met with this guy in secret. And they worked out a deal. And uh, Tripp said, okay. He was going to pay 30%. If he really wanted to build this building, he was going to pay 30% less rent than the average square foot in New York. And he wanted 30 foot high Pan Am signs on all four sides of the building. (laughs) And he wanted a 10%. Yeah, he wanted a 10% stake in the building with options to increase his holdings. This is a pretty good deal for him. And that they do accept this. Wow, man. He just pushes his luck. Every turn. And he got it. <laughs> I know. And he got it. They were going to, and they occupied nine of the floors plus the sidewalk sales office with a 30 year lease at a cost of uh, almost 116 million over the course of 30 years. Yep. This is the largest commercial lease ever signed for a Manhattan building at this time. Wow. Yep. So another yeah. first. <laughs> it, it's another, yeah, another first. And he saw that, so he gets a great deal on the lease, he owns 10% of the building, and down the road they continue to buy shares in the building to the point where they actually own it. In fact, this building is worth so much money that, in a few more episodes, or in the third episode here that we do, they sell the building, the entire building, they make a ton of money off it. Mm. But anyway, uh, he did get the lease, but they couldn't do the 30-foot signs. They just reduced it to 15 feet. <laughs> yeah. This was finished in 1963. Opponents called it a building that was a monument to greed and irresponsibility. <laughs> and Wad Tripp said, I love it. <laughs> he probably had two thumbs up. 
It said you it got sounds it. Sounds like Amazon back in the day, like just now, you know, <laughs> erecting gigantic buildings everywhere. And you know, I could, if you could just take that yeah. quote and replace Pan Am with Amazon, probably no one would think it was anything different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was good. So, the next step after the jet age, he was Juan was already looking forward. And the next thing was supersonic, which, you know, this is Concord. Right. Uh, there were some issues, though. Uh, the big one is the JFK government at the time. They reduced funding, so they looked to Europe. Uh, but it was really expensive. British Airways was the one who ran Concord uh, when during its, its lifetime. Uh, but supersonic transport was really expensive, and governments didn't want to subsidize it. So it really didn't go anywhere. That's really it. Yeah. Pilots were really excited because they thought that was going to be the next thing that they were going to fly. Mm. But it never, never produced. So in the 50s through the 60s, they weren't really expanding hugely. There weren't that many new pilots until the jet age came. And once that jet age came, they bought all these new planes. They hired all these new pilots. And I'm going to go, we're going to talk about this more in depth in the future. But pilots, it's all about hierarchy. It's about time of hire and years of service. Basically, just time of hire. It determines your rank. Well, if you don't get floods of new people, you kind of just stay where you are unless people are retired. At this point in time, things were good. Lots of people got hired. There was that momentum. But as you'll see over the decades, they're not really hiring. So you have these people that have been like in the same spot for decades. Yeah. And the disparity in income was pretty high. If you were a new pilot, you could expect to make... 6000 a year, which I think is maybe probably around fifty or 60000 in U.S. dollars. Okay, it's not terrible. Uh, but if you were a veteran, one of those sky gods, quote-unquote, you could be making 400000 a year. Oof. Yeah, you could do very well. Yep. And another interesting thing is a lot of these pilots would come from the military and they would go into the commercial life. So in the military, pilots get all the glamour because they're officers – and the flight engineers, which are also on flights at this time. So you have the captain, you have a co-pilot, the first officer, and you have a flight engineer. Well, the flight engineers in the military are enlisted men. But in the private industry, they're considered pilots. So when <laughs> during the interview process, they would ask a pilot if he wants to be a pilot or a flight engineer. Well, you've been in the military... Like, why in the world am I going to go down to be a flight engineer that's an enlisted man that I could be a pilot, <laughs> actually fly the plane? Well, they pick pilot because, you know, they're that's what they want to do. They think it's cool. And they find out that they make 60% less than a flight engineer <laughs> because the flight engineer is part of a different union and they're able to make about 1500 a month versus 500 for a starting pilot. Oh, man. <laughs> Whoops. Anyway, so supersonic, that was just a little fun tangent mm -hmm. here. Supersonic travel is not going to happen. The Concorde isn't really happening for them. But they still want to move forward. So he likes the 707. They built it to his specifications. But what's the next thing? He wants to increase capacity, right? All the way back to that Long Island Airways, mm -hmm. right? If I can increase capacity, I can increase revenue. So then that happens. That's it. <laughs> That's, That's it. it. That no. happens. <laughs> that happens. Now the the Boeing seven forty seven. 
which is still running to this day in variations. Uh, I'm going to try to make this story a little bit shorter, but Pan Am put in an order for them. They worked with Boeing. Uh, they cost $500 million for 25 of them. Wow. That's way and, different than his first order. <laughs> yeah. That's in 1965 money. Oof. That's the equivalent of $3.3 billion. This is a huge order. And it's not like Boeing is making a huge amount of money. They have to... They won't make a profit unless 50 planes were bought by different airlines. This project was so large that the bank that they borrowed from, if Boeing defaulted, the bank would go under. (laughs) (laughs) that's insane that is crazy yeah yeah and they request they repeatedly had to request more funding from the bank Um, and if any of them had been denied boeing may have not even made it i mean that's how much money they had to build a whole new facility for this Um, their debt exceeded two billion dollars and they owed 1.2 billion to that bank which was a record. And the Alan, the CEO, later said, it was too large a project for us. <laughs> he goes, we got lucky that we succeeded. And they had a monopoly in the, the very, quote unquote, you know, the very large passenger aircraft section uh, for many years. So they did profit, but that wasn't, they didn't know that at the time. But the 747 is a beast of a plane. It would have a range of 5,100 miles. It would carry 350 to 400 passengers, a speed of 0.9 Mach, almost the speed of sound, right? and a cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. I should probably put that in there. <laughs> um, and then in 1966, as they were, they're going through this development, because this is 1965, mm-hmm. right? So 1966, the government said look, they had a meeting of all these big business leaders, and they said... Would you guys kind of cool off and reduce spending? <laughs> and just imagine Alan and Trip, or they're just looking at each other like, that's not happening. We're going to go under if this doesn't happen. Uh, so they had a meeting with the president and they convinced them of the importance of their project. And they got the go ahead. Wow. Yeah. 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 I will say these guys so are very forward. skilled in negotiation. And pitching. Yeah, they, whatever they do, yeah. it's working. Something, yeah, yeah. it's working. <laughs> yep. Uh, so that's, that's we'll say that's the good, right? So then there's some things not happen. These pilots, so we're in the 60s, right? These pilots from the 30s have been doing this a really long time. All these planes, they start crashing. They don't know what's going on. One of the lead, like the, the mistake that's more of like a ha-ha was... One of the pilots, they landed at the wrong airport. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. Uh, but there's another syndrome, and I forget the name of the syndrome, but if you're taking off at night, you can get really disoriented. You can't tell what from what, and you may not trust your instruments. And there are incidences of pilots literally nosediving into the ocean. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a big deal. But despite these issues... Things are going well. It's, uh, they made almost a billion dollars in 1967 gross. They made a profit of 67 million. And the year before that, they made, I think, almost 100 million, like I was telling you before. 
passengers is growing, but at this point in time in the late 60s, they're just starting to lose momentum. The 707s <clears throat> are starting to fly half empty. It's not good considering the 747, who holds over double, hasn't even come into production yet. Uh, on the pro, travel to Europe was increasing, but there's a lot more airlines, and so a lot of Americans are flying on foreign airlines. But it's okay. Trips in charge. He is leading this company. He is a strong leader, which I don't think there's any contention about that. Except Trip just declared that he was retiring. The person who created the success of this airline is now <coughs> leaving. At its height, which is basically right here, a few years before, they had planes, hotels, missile ranges. They had the largest commercial office building. Tripp may have been a dictator of this company who's made decisions without consulting others, but his choices panned out for the betterment of the company. And now the man who's created this leviathan of a company is now leaving. And on May 7th, 1968, the death spiral has begun. Yeah, wow. and that is where we are going to end today. Oof, it's a lot. It is a lot, but I'm I'm now uh, <laughs> kind of on the edge of my seat for the next part of it. <laughs> it's a good good cliffhanger good. spot. <laughs> good, good, yeah. Trip is gone. So Trip is gone, but he is still at the company, kind of as an advisor, mm. uh, just to kind of put it up there. He doesn't contribute all that much, as you'll see, but essentially this is where Trip leaves. Okay, the, the picture. I think it'll yeah. be interesting to look at. Um, because we a lot of times there's there's debate about and we've talked about this before with the rising CEO salaries and things like that, um, but at the same time, there is something to be said for the importance of this person at the head of the company and the direction that they take it. Because obviously, I'm assuming you know because you're going to tell this story later, but I'm assuming that the leadership changeup was one of the biggest factors in this this demise i'm sure there's other factors involved but sure. i would think that this is a huge piece because it seems like as you said this is the pivotal moment where everything just declined yeah finding successors is really one of the keys in business you need to find great successors if you want to continue to thrive mm -hmm. anyway yeah. yeah so we'll see what happens with pan am see how they did there are there is a character that I'm gonna kind of backtrack on in our next episode because he wasn't kind of he has his own story in here so I'll kind of backtrack a little bit and then we'll kind of pull mm -hmm. us in. Um, but yeah, yeah. So this is the good things. But we can talk about that real quick. Painting was a force to be reckoned with. They are pole vaulting over their competitors. And one thing I didn't mention here, they have a monopoly on almost almost monopoly on international American air travel. Mm -hmm. It's regulated, sure, but yeah, it is a monopoly nonetheless. They don't have a huge domestic presence. You'll see that here as well. But yeah, they're doing amazing things right now. We are right there at their height. What do you think? So you didn't know anything about Pan Am here. What do you think now? What do I think? <laughs> um, so I'll say that... I think it's an impressive history. Um, I'm really intrigued by this force of nature that is 
Juan trip <laughs> and, and how yeah. he just is able to waltz really into any of these situations with a confidence that may be unwarranted <clears throat> in many circumstances <laughs> and still get his way. Uh, I think there's a, there's at least something to be said for the, the level of uh, grit and confidence that takes to to push and bet on something that you really aren't sure is going to, for lack of a better term, yeah. pan out, you know? So um, yeah. I, I think that's been one of the most interesting things here. And then I've also enjoyed looking at, as I mentioned before, how, uh, how we see the legacy that remains from some of these things that Pan Am may be gone, but many of the things that they created or were first for, you know, are still around. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm going to take us to the modern day here. I'm going to ask you an important question that I think I'm going to ask of all of our leaders that we talk about. Was he a transformative leader, Matt? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and I agree. And before we go on, before you say, so let's just talk about what that is. I think we agreed a transformative leader is someone that's able to look into the future, see where the company is now, and move the company forward to where they need to be at that point in time in the future mm-hmm. okay and i think before you go and say your part i think he i agree with you i think he did that and he didn't just do it once once he could get lucky he did it multiple times he can see the future and is able to move his company exactly where it needs to be to not just stay with the competition but he's literally out flying them they have this I'm trying to remember the, uh, I don't even know if there's a name for this principle, but essentially this principle is when everything's going good or when everything's going well, that's when you need to change. Change isn't when Mm. you see all of a sudden things aren't going well. So you need to, you need to start changing by that point. It's, I wouldn't say too late, but I would say you've missed the point where you could have benefited from change the most. So they say that on this journey of, of this cycle of transformation over and over again, it is changing when things are going well. And I think that Juan showed that multiple times where he said, hey, I know things are going well with this current model of plane, but we really need to start looking at jets and transatlantic flights and everybody else was like no 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 i mean what's wrong with what we have it's not really the way of of the future and and to caveat that not everything that comes out for the future is a good thing (laughs) you know there's plenty of technologies that everybody says like this is going to be the next best thing and it's not um (laughs) but but that's what makes him trans Mm -hmm. transformational is that he's able to see that and he's right and he's right again Mm -hmm. and again yeah. Yeah, I think it's very yeah. good. So, that's wrapping up this episode. We have two more episodes. I think they'll probably be a little bit shorter, each one, than this one. Uh, and we'll look into the death spiral, albeit a fairly long one, because they don't go under until the 90s. Um, and we'll kind of go into the details of, of what happens. So, cool. thank you so much for listening. I know Matt and I had a blast doing this, and we look forward to uh, talking to you guys here. Yeah. Next and, time. Uh, we'll, you know, if we've got, if you've got questions, comments, um, feedback, whatever, um, we're going to be posting an email 
that you can, right. yes. you can send. We yeah, we don't have it yet, but we, we will be posting it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We hope to hear from you guys soon. All right. Bye.